Well, we live, surprise, surprise, in a secular society, in a materialist society, and uh, I think the outcome of that is that we have become uh, tragic realists, right? We are just people who tend to think mostly in terms of what's really there, which typically means the things that we experience with our five senses, the things that we can smell, taste, touch, feel, all those things. But in this, I think we have lost the art of Christian imagination. Christian imagination. We dupe ourselves into pretending that this life, its sufferings, its benefits, its good things, its prosperity, and its hardships are simply a matter of our lot, as if it's all there is. As a result, we have lost the ability to imagine, the, by faith, the things that are still to come. We tend to only focus on what's here and what's now. Now, while it's true that no eye has seen nor ear has heard what awaits the saints, I think Scripture ha has nevertheless provided us with beautiful images of the redemptive forthcoming realities for those in Christ. Just think of the Bible and think of the way the Bible's written and think of all the things that are in the Bible and see how scripture gives us these appetizing glimpses of new creation. The Bible's not just black and white of what there is and it doesn't just describe life now. It gives us all this imagery and symbolism of the life to come. It tells us of a coming marriage supper and of a kingdom table it actually paints the picture of a feast where wine goblets are being passed around and, and meats being given by the Lord himself. It tells of a perfect city, of a new Jerusalem that comes down from heaven itself. It whispers of a renewed world in which every creature, and it, and it paints this image of creatures that creep on the land and the creatures that swim in the sea all creation, animals, creatures, singing praises to God. It tells us of rivers and trees, wound healing leaves, gardens, well-aged wine, steaks. It tells us of all these kinds of things. And all God's people said, amen. amen. And in doing so, I think... God shows us in his word that he intends for us to engage, engage in a sanctified imagination in which we allow ourselves to momentary get, momentarily get lost in the world that's to come. Something that we don't let ourselves do very often. We can slow down, we can and should slow down, and imagine what life will be like when Christ returns and restores the world. We should do that. That's a good thing to do. What will it be like, just, just for a second, let's just play pretend for a minute. What will it be like to walk on the Pacific Ocean beach with Jesus? I mean, it's pretty now, right? Filled with all of its panoramic visions. What will it be like to see Mount Everest in a world made new? What will it be like for Jesus to take the leaves from the tree of life, as Revelation 22 says, and heal the nations with that? What will it be like to have that first sip of wine in the new kingdom when Jesus is drinking it with us? 
It's good for us to imagine what life will be like when God fulfills his promises. Those images are there for a purpose. It doesn't just say, hey, I want you to read this and not imagine it, not engage in thinking about it. I think Christian imagination, the ability to think ahead and and dream, to actually allow ourselves to daydream about new creation is a lost Christian discipline. And the result is our faith in the present is weak. Writer Hannah Mitchell says that imagination plants the inconceivable in our minds and makes our hearts long for it to be true. I think we can add to this and take it further. If imagination plants the inconceivable, we don't know what new creation is like, but an imagination helps us to picture it. Imagination plants the inconceivable in our minds and makes our hearts long for it to be true, And then imagination mingled with faith tells us that those inconceivable promises of God are indeed true. That it's not just a figurative speech to say that we will walk with God. No, it wants you to imagine what walking with God will actually be like. You You may say, I can't imagine it. That's exactly the point. The fact that you try to imagine it and can't yet get there stirs up your faith to want it even more. The fact that you don't know what it will be like to sit at the kingdom's table and drink wine with Jesus and eat of the steaks of the new kingdom, that's not just symbolic. There's a communion coming with Jesus. Because we can't imagine that, our appetites get stirred up. I mean, just think of the way that all of you talk about the uh, Brazilian steakhouse. I've never been there. I only have descriptions from you of how great it is and and that just that's a reflection on you as friends that you tell me about it but don't take me there (laughs) just saying but i get all these wonderful descriptions of meat on sticks coming out and they just drive it into your plate and I, i just as i think about that like steak cooked to order endless really you just eat and you eat and you eat and i've it's that picture and your description that drives up my appetite to want to go there. Next week? All right. It's on the calendar. I may not be able to preach next Sunday, so somebody be ready. I think it's important to see how our imagination stirs up our appetites for the kingdom of God to come. Now, this may be way too metaphysical for some of you, but what I want to do is I want to re-engage the lost discipline of taking time to humble ourselves and dream of what God is going to give to his people. Now, how does any of this apply to Psalm 126? In Psalm 126, the psalmist teaches us how to look ahead, how to engage in holy imagination in which we can dream of the restoration that is to come. He shows us how to practice our faith and confidence in our great redeemer by anticipating, actively anticipating the great day of redemption when it will reach its final consummation. As pilgrims, we are those on a journey who dream, who engage in this sanctified daydreaming of what it will be like when we finally get home. And that motivates us to keep going. The key word in this Psalm is restore or return. You see it a couple of times there, and it may reveal a little bit about the psalmist's context. The author stated hope in a forthcoming restoration 
the recognition of the present weeping and mourning, mourning, and the future role of the nations in acknowledging, just him bringing in the nations into this psalm at all, insinuates that this psalm is written in a context of exile. This is a time when God's people have been driven away from the land, probably the great exile when the Assyrians came and took half of the kingdom away, and then the Babylonians came and toppled down the temple, and so God's people are away from home. They're in this time of exile, this far offness where they feel far from home. So there's something in this context here that has the author homesick, missing, uh, what, missing his true place, and dreaming of what it's gonna be like when he finally gets back. Dreaming about what it's gonna be like when God's restorative promises come true. Now, I think you should take always, always, always take careful note of how a passage is structured. There's intentionality in the way that a psalmist builds his psalm. This psalm begins as if the restoration is already complete. Did you notice that? Look at verse one of of chapter 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And then he keeps using this past tense phraseology. We were like those who dreamed. Our mouth was filled. Our tongue were filled. The nations said, past tense. We said, past tense. So it's all filled with past tense here, as if it's already happened. But then somewhere around verse four, he clicks back to the present as if the restoration hasn't happened. Restore, he, he prays, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all, right? It would make more sense if he prayed, restore our fortunes, O Lord, and then it said, when the Lord restored. Like, that's the, that's the proper order of things, right? Like, there's a future petition, restore, and then God fulfills, and then he can speak in past tense, when the Lord restores. So, what is he doing by switching it around? He's dreaming. That's what he's doing. He's thinking ahead, as if he's already there. When the Lord restored, that's, that's what he wants us to see as he begins with the end in mind, with this sanctified imagination, and he goes from dreaming about what life will be like when the Lord restored to then stirring up his faith to pray, restore our fortunes. How amazing is that? He, he dreams about the end. He dreams about the final fruition of God's promises, And then that drives him to pray in the present for that to happen. It stirs up his faith. One commentator puts it this way. The psalmist projects himself into the future to speak in response to hope realized in the faith certainty of one who knows that God will keep his promise, though the events have not yet taken place. Like the psalmist, Christian pilgrims look ahead in faith to God's future grace. We know in faith, we know that all of God's promises will be fulfilled, and even more than we could ever imagine. We know that, right? Because we have confidence in our God. So in this confidence of looking ahead and knowing that there's going to be a day when he can say, past tense, the Lord restored us, that he can say that, and that dreaming drives him back to the present where now he prays, God, help me have faith Restore your people. Sometimes I think our weak faith comes down to the fact that we don't dream. You know, there's something wrong with a woman who doesn't dream about the future wedding day. There's something unhealthy about that, right? Like like if a man, you know, 
was just standing there next to his soon-to-be bride, and he wasn't dreaming about what life will be like when they're finally together. There's something not right about that. It should build up an anticipation, a, a holy coming together that's going to happen in, in climax in this wedding day that then leads to a blessed life together. Yes, he has no way of knowing what that's going to be like, but at the moment, just to think about what it will be like to call him, call her his wife. It's, it's amazing. I love working with uh, engaged people because they have no idea what's coming. Both good and bad. They just have no idea what's coming. But I love watching them get excited on the way up there. To watch them talk and, 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 and you know, when we start talking about even fights, there's a session in our premarital counseling that we talk about fights. And there's this one guy that I was talking about biblical conflict with. He was like, I'm just happy she's in the same house to fight with. <laughs> you know, I was just grinning from ear to ear, just thinking about he's going to be fighting with someone he lives with and how amazing that will be. Love watching the anticipate. Now, he doesn't have any clue what it's going to be like, so <laughs> bubbles will be burst. But I love the anticipation. It's, it's, like a, it's like a woman thinking about what it will be like to get to the end of the aisle when she's finally hand-in-hand hand with her beloved. It's like the climber thinking about what the, the view from the summit will be like. It's like a soldier who's on active tour of duty, who's been away from home for years and months, and he's dreaming about what it will be like when he opens the door and finds his kiddos running to his arms. Like, that's, that's good. There's something blessed about that. Sometimes, and I don't know what's at the bottom of it, I really don't know why, but we are sometimes scared to dream of what it will be like when a loved one pops up out of the grave because of the great resurrection. Maybe we're thinking we're gonna give, get our hopes up, but hasn't God promised that? He's made it as sure as the day? That's more real. That promise of a resurrection is more real than anything else we know because we have a resurrected Savior. Because He has risen, we can know that there will be a real resurrection. So we can, we can dream of what it will be like to hold loved ones again. We can dream of what it will be like to not be in fear anymore. Yes, absolutely, we have no idea what's coming, but we are marching to a great wedding day. We are on the way up to God's mountain, and there's a coming final consummation of peace when the war is over, and we soldiers get to go home. When every weapon is, is bent into a farming tool, no more needs for swords or closed gates or door alarms or guns. Everything's meant for productive, flourishing life at that point. Have you ever just stood in front of the deep chasm, like the Grand Canyon, and be like, what is it going to be like? I mean, it's pretty now. We watched uh, America the Beautiful on Disney Plus um, two nights ago. And there's this photoplankton in Florida, of all places, where dinosaurs live. Uh, there's this photoplankton that glows at night, glows a deep blue, and it just kind of streaks and makes these patterns of blue. And there's these bottlenose dolphins that use the photoplankton to go fishing at night to catch fish. 
And as they're swimming through the water, the photoplankton rests on the dolphin and makes it glow when it swims. Have you ever thought about a glowing dolphin? Oh my goodness, it was the coolest thing I've ever seen. It's just amazing. That's amazing now. What's it gonna be like in new creation when the dolphin learns how to sing? I mean, the Bible does say things on the land and things under the sea, singing praises to God. A glowing, singing, amazing dolphin. What? Just stirs up my heart. That's cool. My friends, I, I, I totally believe that God has called us to work hard and labor hard. He has. But he's also called us to rest. A rest that's been given in the now and not yet. It's a rest we have now and a rest that's still to come. This is the reason I believe as, as healthy Christians you should take a vacation. This is why I think it's good for you to step away from some things sometimes and sit on your back porch. This is why I believe that when fall hits, you should go for walks among trees. You should pay attention to colors as they change. You should build up amazement and wonder in your own backyard when the red cardinal flies right by and sits on the log beside you. That's beauty in the here and now that's gonna be even more beautiful in the world to come. We just, we don't, we act as if God wants us to completely wait, but we do have a now and not yet reality of the kingdom. That's a doctrinal belief that we have. We stand firm in this reality that the kingdom is not just coming. The kingdom has already come and is still coming. There's a now and not yet. We can enjoy life in the presence of God now. We have him now. The scripture calls the indwelling spirit inside of us the down payment. Okay, God's spirit living in us is just the down payment. I wonder what the full payment will be like. We're new creatures, which means that we have a new life. Paul talks about us wasting away inwardly day by day. What's it gonna be like when I'm restored? There's not a lot of application in a sermon like this, is there? Other than just to stop running around and to enjoy God where you see him. To dream. So we begin now with the end. During a time when the resurrection, the restoration has already occurred. Now, remember, the psalmist isn't there yet, but he's projecting himself into the future. He's thinking ahead about what it will be like. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouths were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. And these verses, the future restoration of God's people is powerfully brought into the present. In the here and now, he's, he's intentionally deciding to think ahead and bring him into, himself into that moment. In, in his mind's eye, he's just, just thinking ahead and dreaming at this moment. I don't know what he's doing. He's probably sweating in the fields. He's probably sitting alongside and watching these Babylonian guards march by. Maybe he hears the, the emperor's proclamation that you have to come bow at the statue that he's just built. Whatever it is, he's sitting back for a moment in the midst of his suffering and intentionally deciding to bring himself into this moment where he and the Lord can commune together. He looks ahead, he imagines what it will be like, and he writes, we were like those who dream. Have you ever thought that something was too good to be true? 
or gotten somewhere and realized that it was way better than anyone had ever described it. I mean, just amazing. I really hope that's true of the Brazilian steakhouse. That it's just like, it's, there's no words to describe it. It's just you gotta taste it, right? He says we were like those who dream. It was better than anything he could have ever hoped for. Out of all of God's promises, this is much better. It's exceeded his people's expectations. It's almost too good to be true, and yet it is true, and it is very real. Very real. God has done far more abundantly than he could have ever believed he would. See, God doesn't just deliver them from captivity. He restores. He doesn't just bring them out. He brings them back. Spurgeon writes it this way. God, who alone turns our captivity, does nothing by halves. God doesn't just do what's necessary, does he? He does nothing by halves. Those whom he saves from hell... He brings to heaven. He turns exile into ecstasy, banishment into bliss. In the fulfillment of his promises, you realize God does not meet our expectations. He exceeds them every single time. How how awesome is that? That the most wonderful way that you could think about restoration, resurrection, all of it is going to be way better than you could have ever dreamed. We're gonna be like those who dream. This is way too good to be true. And I know, and you add to it that, I know I don't deserve it. I get better to be than, than, than could ever be true, and I don't deserve it. That just makes it sweeter, more amazing. I mean, just think about the way Ephesians 3 talks about that. God has already given us amazing things. If he did nothing else, it would be still unfathomable. Put his spirit inside of your heart. Promised you a resurrection, but he, he promises way more than that. Ephesians chapter three, verses 14 through 19 shows how God exceeds expectation. He is unnecessarily excessive in his grace. Have you ever thought of God? Like God, this is just too much. Unnecessarily excessive in his grace, meaning he does more than he has to more than even you want to, want him to, more than you could ever pray for him to. Ephesians chapter three, verses 14, 19, it says that God, who is labeled as the Father, wait a second, God is our Father. God the Father, from whom every family on heaven and earth is named, has granted us strength according to the riches of his glory. You listen to that language, he's given us strength according to his rich glory. How has he given us strength? Well, he exceeded giving us strength. He could just zapped us with strength, but that's not what he did. He gave us strength by giving us his, his spirit who dwells in our inner being, in our innermost life, in the innermost corridors of our hearts. The spirit of God has intimately broken through. Now, why did he give us the spirit? so that Christ could dwell in our hearts by faith. That's what he says in Ephesians 3. Why does Christ dwell in our hearts? So that you'll be rooted and grounded in love. So that you'll know to the absolute climax of what it's like to be loved by God. To be grounded in his love, to be unshakable. Now, if that wasn't enough, why does he want to root you and ground you in love by giving Christ to live in your heart by faith, by giving you the spirit who dwells in your inner being, by being a father who strengthens you? Why would he do all that? So that you may have the strength 
to understand the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth of the love of Christ. He's not done yet. He wants you to understand the height, the length, the depth, and the breadth of the love of Christ because he wants you to be filled with all the fullness of God. He wants everything that's his for you to feel that and it be yours. Like a father giving an inheritance to his kid just is unnaturally, unnecessarily excessive and overabundant and you're left going, whoa, my needs have been provided for. You have forgiven my sins. Ironically enough, Ephesians 3 says nothing about the grace of atonement. It simply talks about what God has done post-atonement. He gave his son who bore the wrath who was buried and rose again so that you could have resurrected life with him. And then comes the indwelling spirit and the strengthening. All that that we just described was after meeting the necessity of forgiveness. He never gives you what you need. He always goes above and beyond. This doesn't always look like the way we think it is. This isn't a prosperity sermon where you, God knows you need a car, so he's gonna give you a What's, I don't even know cars. Somebody shout out a good car. What? BMW. BMW, there you go. I don't even know if that's a good car, but we'll take your word for it. It's not, it's not what we're talking about, where God knows that you need shoes, so he zaps you with Nikes. We're not talking about that. We're talking about God seeing your deepest spiritual needs and pouring out cup after cup after cup of kindness and grace and rich flowing glory on it. The problem with the prosperity gospel isn't that it promises too much, it promises too little. That's the problem with the prosperity gospel. It promises cars, it promises wealth, it promises property and popularity, but it doesn't promise life with Christ. The real gospel goes way above cars and houses, above bank accounts and popularity. It goes to the innermost being where God is grounding you in his love so that you could have the fullness of God. So just think about that. We were like those who dream. It sounds kind of like Ephesians 20, which after all these things that Paul listed out of God's good grace, he, just, he, he gets to the point of, so that you may be filled with the fullness of God, and he stops, and here's what he says. It's almost like he can't go any further. It's almost like he's, just, he's spent every bit of vocabulary that he can. He doesn't have an adjective left in the bank. And it's not because he's reached the end of what God gives, it's just to reach the end of how much he can describe it. And so he just stops, he says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we could ever ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. He's like, okay, we get to the fullness of God. He's like, I, have, I, I, I can't think, there's more. I can't add to it. So let me just say this. Now the hymn that's gonna do far more abundantly than all the things that we could ever think or ask. So when restoration comes, your expectations will be blown. You'll be like those who dream. It'll feel like it's good, too good to be true and yet every bit of it will be more true than anything else you've ever felt. It's not a metaphorical resurrection when God's people raise up from the grave. It's a real resurrection. And, and not only that, they're their real, they were only half of themselves in life, right? They were fallen creatures. They weren't even the way that God created them to be. But after the resurrection, all God's people 
are perfect in body, spirit, and mind, completely perfect. We're our true selves then, the way that God really intended us to be. Now having received the exceeding grace of restoration, guess what the result is? God's people laugh. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. When God's people were first led in the captivity, they were absolutely broken. You can read it in Psalm 137. When the God's people lament, they had just seen their hometown destroyed. Jerusalem's in shambles. It's still got smoke coming up from the stones. They've made it to Babylon. And this is what God's people say. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows, there we hung our lyres, our harps. A harp is a symbol for joyful singing and celebration. Now, why would they hang their willows on the, their, their harps on the willows? Because they feel like they're never going to sing again. Everything's busted and broken. Maybe you felt like that. You buried your spouse. There's no room for harps anymore. Maybe you're depressed and you daily feel the struggle of, there's not going to be singing in my life. Psalm 137 is filled with people putting harps on willows because they're broken and sad, but Psalm 126 says that when the Lord restores, the harps come down off the trees. God's people laugh. They shout for joy. All of us reserved people who are like, when Moy tries to get us to clap our hands, we're like, mm. you know, all that's gone, all decorum goes away when restoration hits. You got it? Like, like dignity, shouting, laughing, Hysteria, I mean, just, just loving God and all that he's done. Like, there's some of you here, I sat at your family member's funeral and I watched you weep. It hurt to watch your tears. It certainly didn't feel like a time that you were ever gonna sing again. And yet, 126 gives us the promise that the harps will come off the trees. There will be laughter again. There will be the holding of babies again. There will be seeing the people that we loved again. There will be peace and rest when God works restoration. Now the result of this sudden change from weeping to laughing causes the nations to confess the Lord has done great things for them. As is true throughout redemption history, God always works in a way that the nations see that he is God. When the Lord redeemed Israel from Egypt, the Egyptians knew that the Lord was God. When uh, King Darius saw that Daniel had been saved from the lion's den, he sends out a decree proclaiming that Daniel's God is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed. In a similar way, when restoration hits this earth and we are those that are restored, all the nations, no matter how much they hate God, will confess the Lord has done good things for them. Just think of that. All the big baddies, like Hitler's, Hitler's coming forward confessing the Lord's done great things for them. That's unfathomable to my mind. And yet, that's exactly what's going to happen when God hits, his, when God makes his redemption fall, redemption always culminates in his glory among the nations. Every single time, all the world knowing that God has done great things, even if they're not the ones benefiting from it. Now for us, 
who do benefit because we have our faith in Christ. This is the miracle of marriage. It's almost like he's, he's building up from those who dream and he, the laughter and the, the shouting to the climaxes, right? You know the hardest thing? It's not hard to convince a world who logically sees our gospel and says, yeah, Christians are understandably glad. The hardest thing as a pastor is sometimes convincing God's people that he has done great things for them. It's just, we're, we're kind of dead and sad sometimes, aren't we? I mean, we just, we don't, we don't act like those, that this is what's coming. But on this day when restoration falls, the saddest, most self-depressive, most loathing person, Christian in the world is gonna go, God's done great things for me. There's not gonna be any melancholy. No Debbie Downers. Love you, Debbie, you're not a downer, you're an upper. There's gonna be no Debbie Downers. Everyone's gonna be joyful and shouting and confessing that God has done great things. For, for us to confess that, that's a big deal. For us not to have any more excuses of, yeah, well, you know, I didn't quite get the job that I wanted, or yeah, well, I just feel lonely sometimes. All that goes away on that day to where we admit and confess that we, we have no reason to be sad. In fact, then comes the culmination, and we are glad. The freedom to be happy people, the freedom to be joyful, the freedom to acknowledge and sip and eat in God's goodness without feeling like we should feel bad about it. I was raised in a legalistic church, you guys know that. I was told basically anything that came with enjoyment was a sin. Anything that you enjoyed, sex was meant for procreation, not for enjoyment. Alcohol was bad, not because it could be misused, but because people enjoyed it. Anything you enjoyed, you must be doing something wrong. That was, that was the message, plain as day. As I've grown, I've come to realize that is totally opposite of what the scripture talks about. That is not true. God wants us to enjoy him. The old catechism says that the purpose of man is to know God and enjoy him forever. To enjoy God. That's what it's like when restoration hits, is we'll finally be able to enjoy God freely without ourselves getting in the way. We'll be able to enjoy the beach because we don't want mud holes anymore. We'll be able to enjoy the fruit because we're not, we're not going away to the world to eat extra things, the lesser things. We're eating real meat now. We're wanting the real thing now and treasuring God, sipping real sweet wine from him. So when restoration hits, these are the things to come. Now, it's interesting, his momentary peek into the future, he says it all in past tense, which displays his certainty that it's going to happen. It's not if, it's, it says here, when. When the Lord restored. Not if the Lord restores, but when the Lord restores. So he's got this certainty that God's going to do this. So he just momentarily steps aside from the exile. He, he in the middle of Babylon, cast himself into a restored new creation. And then what does he do? Then he prays, comes back to the present. His heart's been stirred up. The fires of his affections are, 
white and hot again because he, he sees and remembers and dreams of what's to come. And then that leads him to the prayer, restore our fortunes, O Lord. Like streams in the Negev. Now the Negev is the desert region of the promised lands, the southern part of Israel. And though it's typically dry, when it rains, it pours. And when it pours, it floods. And when it floods, this dry place sprouts grass out of nowhere. It's the most amazing thing. You should watch documentaries on it. When the floods come, you would think it'd be so destructive. And it can be. It can be a life-ending situation. But it fills this Negev Valley with, with flood. And then the flood dissipates. And guess what comes up? Bushes and flowers and fruit trees and things just flourish. We go from desert to a garden in one flood. He's like, do that. <laughs> Lord, I've seen what it's like. Can you make that happen? Make restoration hit us like a flood in the Negev. Make these desert lives flourish again. Let us enjoy the abundance that comes from your in a moment of grace. I mean, just the, the suddenness that happens. Just the unexpected. So God, let that, let that be the way it happens. We're so unexpected and sudden, and where we go from death to life, just like that. That's what we're praying for. But though he hopes in a swift, sudden, redemptive transformation, it seems that he accepts that there's still suffering that he must endure in the meantime. He doesn't know when God's going to pour out restoration. He knows that it will be sudden. He knows that it will be swift, but he doesn't know when. So there may be a meantime, in the meantime, right? Little did he know it'd be thousands of years, possibly, because when he wrote this, Christ wasn't even on earth yet. Christ hadn't even taken on flesh yet. So though he hopes in a swift, sudden, redemptive reversal, a transformation, his forward-looking faith also leads him to ask for patience and strength in his current suffering. Listen to the truth that he speaks to himself. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. The psalmist knows that a great reversal's coming. Tears are not tears, tears are seeds. In God's economy, in God's plan, there's no such thing as a wasted suffering or no such thing as a useless time of sorrow. Every tear that's shed, every brokenness that we feel, every loss that we mourn, everything, is preparing for a harvest of joy. Every time we put a loved one in the ground, every time we experience the ache of this desert, it's preparing us for what life is gonna be like when it pops forth full of life. When those loved ones come out of their grave. When we suffer heavy losses, when we weep, when we struggle with poor health, when we receive the earth-shattering news, we can trust that all things are not wasted, but all things are being prepared, are preparatory. They're preparing us for the life to come. Paul writes this. This is the outcome of knowing that this is true. So we do not lose heart. When we suffer, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away. Right now you're getting older, you're getting more wrinkly. That's not directed toward anyone in particular, just... General truth that you're getting older, you're getting decrepit, you're gonna fall apart, you're gonna get cancer. That may not sound like good news, 
But listen to what Paul says. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed, restored day by day. And then here comes the promise. For this momentary affliction, that back pain that didn't used to be there when you were 20 years old, that struggle and fear that wasn't there two years ago, whatever it was, this momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. In other words, we imagine, right? We don't we don't look at bank accounts. We don't look at property values. We don't look at housing markets. We don't, we don't put our trust in any of those things. We look at the things that are to come, the things that are unseen. We look to them. We imagine them. We dream of them. For the things that are seen are transient. In other words, all the things that you have and can touch and smell and taste, all the things that you see are not all that real. Yes, they're real in the sense of they're material things, but they're things that are passing away, things that you won't get to play with forever, things that you won't get to enjoy. They won't bring any lasting satisfaction. But the things that are unseen, the fruit trees that have not yet been planted on this earth, the city that has not yet descended where we will dwell with God, those things are eternal. Maybe we should reorient our lives accordingly. Instead of living for all the transient things, the pools, the cars, the couches, the whatever it is, maybe we should start living for the things that are eternal, the, the relationships, the, the joy, you know, just to think that it is more valuable, a walk in a garden park, a, a walk in the woods, a, the ability to sit down and take five minutes to enjoy a fall breeze, to enjoy a summer sunset, maybe that's more eternal and more valuable if it leads you to the throne of Christ than anything else you have. And to reorient your life according to that. And then to bask in the good news that when you cry, those seeds are preparing for a harvest. I've seen people weep before, just this uncontrollable, shattering kind of, where they just break down. And every tear shed being a seed is going to burst forth with joy in the end. How good is our God to not even leave a tear wasted? In his, in his redemptive reversal, to use the symbol of mourning and sadness, tears, and to turn them into seeds. That's incredible. That's powerful. For God to take the very thing, like you see uh, an emoji face with a tear running down, you think that's, you just know that comes with all this sadness and mourning, grief, it symbolizes something. And yet, in the kingdom of heaven, that symbolizes a joy to come. And to remember that our suffering is preparing us for glory beyond anything that we could dream. Now, my friends, I I would be uh, not doing my job if I acted as if the restoration to come is just to come, just a future thing, but it's not. The good news is the restoration has broken into the present. You may not be able to see it, that's good news because unseen things are eternal, right? You may not be able to to actually point your finger at it, but the reality is, is that there is a resurrection and a restoration that has broken into the present now. How so? Jesus has raised from the dead. We realize it's not a metaphor, right? It's not symbolic. Like there is a actual physical, breathing, living, 
throne-sitting Jesus in heaven. Real dead guy, now real resurrected king. With flesh, bones, fingers, eyes, nose. It's, it's our king, physically, reigning on the throne. Paul calls him the first fruit. That is, that is the first glimpse. If you want to know what resurrection life is going to be like, look to the resurrected Lord. That's what's awaiting all of us. Paul says over and over again in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus is the first fruits of the restorative work. Moreover, what God did for his son, he's going to do for you, for those of you that trust in him. The resurrection is coming. Why? So that just like Christ raised from the dead and ascended to the right hand throne of God, we will be there seated with him to enjoy the everlasting presence of God to receive the richness of his kindness. So when Psalm 126 talks about we were those who dreamed, and it talked about we're going to laugh, we were like those who, whose mouth were filled with laughter and our tongues with shouts of joy. And when the nations say the Lord's done great things to them, you realize that the psalmist is projecting forward to you and I who have received the, the blessing of restoration, restoration and resurrection in Christ. That's us. Everything in the psalm is our psalm. It's a promise for us. So my friends, how do you apply this? It's too hot to sit on your back porch, but when it's cool enough, I want you to sit on your back porch and take time. I want you to dream. And the first thing in the morning before you check your inbox, how about just take a moment just to enjoy the fresh air and sip a cup of coffee and know even that cup of coffee is a good gift from your redemptive Lord, that you can enjoy that as a foretaste of things to come. If coffee is that good on this side of the resurrection, <laughs> what happens with resurrected taste buds? I mean, just, just allowing yourselves to dream and then allowing that to strengthen you. Whatever you go through this week, whatever hardships you face, to know with certainty that because we have a resurrected Lord, we too will benefit and, and will be the recipients of a greater resurrection and restoration still to come. God's people will not stay dead. God's people will not suffer forever. Every tear you weep from Monday to Saturday this next week is planting seeds for a harvest to come. Because our God is good and he loves us, and he has saved us in the first fruits of redemption, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truth of Psalm 126. We pray, Father, that we will accept it, that we will believe it, Father, and that we will allow our hearts to drift off into daydreaming. It's weird not to have a whole lot of application like loving our neighbor. We certainly should love our neighbor. We certainly should practice spiritual disciplines. We certainly should watch what we watch, but all those things, Father, are secondary applications compared to allowing ourselves to take some preemptive taste from the wine goblet that you've already given us, to take in the appetizers of redemption as we wait for the entree to come, to enjoy communion with our Lord and Savior now because you have not made a reality that we have to wait. We have the down payment living inside of us. So God, I pray for a people who are restored 
even if it's a pre-restoration before the restoration, that they will be able to enjoy trees and rivers and streams and creeks and fruit and coffee, relationships, that they'll be able to enjoy breezes, Lord, as gifts that you have sent ahead of the great Christmas day that awaits us. Thank you that every good and honorable thing comes from you. And I pray, Father, that in our daydreaming you will strengthen our faith. We pray this in your son's name, amen.